You're listening to episode 11 of the ESL Teaching Podcast. Today, I wanted to talk about the mental and emotional health of teachers and processing emotions in difficult times. We always seek information and want to better our knowledge of how to support our English learners and all students, but I wanted to honor teachers as humans and not just as vessels of knowledge that are expected to show up and perform no matter what. The war in Ukraine has brought up some raw emotions for many people around the world. And in this episode, I will share a little bit of the history of my country and how it relates to the war in the Ukraine. Then I will explain why this is important to me. And lastly, I will share some tips that have helped me cope and I hope will help you too. I find that when I'm centered, I can show up better for my family and my students. And it is my hope that you will find this episode helpful and can come back to it whenever you need encouragement and simple ways to return to yourself. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the ESL Teaching Podcast. I'm your host, Yeva Grossless, otherwise known as Simply Yeva, and I am so thankful that you tuned in. I'm looking forward to sharing both my knowledge and experience on this podcast, as well as that of my fellow teachers. Hello, hello, everyone. Today, I want to talk about how we can help ourselves to get into the optimal mental state and emotional well-being in difficult situations. As teachers, our job is to give But when we find ourselves dealing with personal and global tragedies, we need to pause. In this episode, I wanted to share with you my thoughts and feelings and how I am coping with something that has hit me hard, and that is the war in Ukraine. First, I'll share a little bit of history of my country and some objective information. Then I'll go into what the situation has brought up for me. And lastly, I will share some tips that had helped me cope and I will help, I hope they will help you too. If you feel called to donate or otherwise help the people of Ukraine, I will link some organizations below this episode in the show notes. And on behalf of Simply Yeva, I will donate 10% of all the proceeds from sales this month to UNICEF, an organization that helps children in crisis situations. So if you have been looking for ways to support both your students and the people of Ukraine, this would be a great opportunity to do both. Check out the resources in my Teachers Pay Teachers store as well as my ESL Teaching Roadmap membership. Language is my thing. I love reading and writing. I immediately perk up when I hear an eloquent speaker, an interesting word, or a witty remark. I used to work as a translator where expressing yourself precisely not only in words but in meaning was essential. But since February 24th, the day of Russia's invasion into the Ukraine, I have been at a loss for words. I know I have been very angry, very upset, and very disoriented, but these words still haven't encapsulated the exact feeling of what is going on inside. Until yesterday, when I read yet another Facebook post by someone, a Lithuanian expat in Australia, who expressed their thoughts and feelings towards the events of this past week. I realized that I had not allowed myself to fully acknowledge my anger and disorientation. I thought to myself, I'm not a Ukrainian. The war is not on my soil. I have no right to be this furious. 
I will be angry in a measured way. I will let others be outraged. But I lied to myself. And I am exposing this lie now. Raw fury is the feeling that has consumed me, as I am sure many people around the world, this past week and has made me feel on edge and much more reactive than usual. Not ideal in any situation in life. Yet, how can we get through it? Let's get to the objective part of this whole story. I live in the U.S., but I come from the southernmost Baltic state of Lithuania. My parents, siblings, aunts, uncles, cousins, friends, my whole family live there. Lithuania has a direct border with Russia. It is called the Kaliningrad region and is a small plot of land wedged between the southwestern part of Lithuania and northern Poland. Whenever you travel to the Baltic Sea and take the scenic route, you can stop and admire the beautiful river, but you know that Russia is on the other side. Last summer, we went to the Koronian Spit, which is one of the most treasured and internationally protected areas in Lithuania, and there were signs for Russia. You could see it not even a kilometer away. It is very close, and it is very real. Lithuania also has a direct border with Belarus, a pro-Russian state that has been under the rule of their authoritarian leader, Alexander Lukashenko, since 1994, not to mention my native city, Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania, is only 30 kilometers away from the border with Belarus and some 700 kilometers, about 400 miles, from Kiev, Ukraine. I was a kid at the tail end of the Soviet Union. I learned Russian alongside Lithuanian because it was mandatory. Lithuania was the first country to announce its independence from the Soviet Union in 1990, but on January 13, 1991, the Soviets sent their tanks to help us quote-unquote understand that we had made a mistake. I was 13 at the time, but I remember the tension, the agitation, and the energy of determination of the people. I remember watching the news closely and my father getting up in the middle of the night and leaving to defend the parliament building like so many other people. There were no cell phones back then and there was no way of knowing what was actually happening except for the only national TV station broadcasting up to the minute news. I remember how the TV program went static when the occupants were finally able to get through. I remember the tanks on the streets of Vilnius, the fortifications that people built to protect the most important buildings, the fires that kept us all warm during cold nights. Lithuania was able to avert Russian invasion by the sheer will of the people and peaceful yet determined resistance. Still, 14 people were killed. But this is in my living memory. The events in the Ukraine have stirred our collective trauma. You probably won't find a Lithuanian whose family had not suffered from mass deportations to Siberia, attempts to recruit them for the KGB, or even fighting in the resistance movement. Our blood is boiling when we hear and see the Western leaders trying to make deals with someone for whom the power of honorable word and agreement means nothing. As a teacher, I help my students understand complex texts and ideas. Our 8th graders are currently reading Elie Wiesel's Night. And as I was going through the first chapters of this tragically poignant story, it dawned on me. Moishe the Beetle, who is a beggar Jew who becomes Elie's unofficial teacher of the Kabbalah and who is among the first wave of Jews to be deported out of Hungary, was the person who tried to warn his people about the atrocities that were coming. 
He was the one that survived the mass shooting by pretending to be dead. He was the one that had the fire in his heart to crawl back to his own town because what he had seen was indescribable, yet he hoped it could be prevented. But his attempts fell onto deaf ears. People simply did not believe him. He's a beggar, they would say. He just wants you to feel sorry for him. He has gone crazy. I'm just going to give him, give him food and shoo him away. He is talking nonsense. Until the day came when the Jewish people were closed in the ghettos and later deported to concentration camps. The rest is history. I cry every single time I read this book. The relevance of human tragedy and ignorance is astonishing. The Baltic states have been Moishe the Beatle. They tried to warn their colleagues from the West, but all the warnings fell on deaf ears once again. They're small, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. What do they know? But they do, because they lived it. I think the fury is partly coming from this, knowing there had been signs and talks, but nothing tangible had been done about it. My anger is a stronger version of the exasperation we have when we keep repeating the same thing to our spouses or kids, and then we have to say, I told you so. But at the same time, I can also understand that this is personal for me, and I cannot expect others to feel as riled up about this, especially if the connection with the Ukraine or Lithuania or that region in general is only theoretical. I have Russian friends who are just as horrified by the events as me. I have Ukrainian friends whose hearts are breaking and their anger is palpable. My fellow Lithuanians are both determined and at a loss at the same time in a state of preparation because it is very real that we could be next. I have students who are either from there or have family in those countries. And I am almost certain you know at least someone, at least distantly, in the same situation. It is rough for all of us, which brings me to the next point. How can we deal with these complex emotions that I was only able to describe by using synonyms of the word anger? We must continue our lives no matter what happens. Unless war is on our soil, we go to work, take care of family and perform our daily duties. We must not give in to the anger because it does not bring constructive results. It is hard for everyone when life gets shaken to its foundations. Yet our job is to put a mask on and give the knowledge, the care, and the safe learning environment for our students. It's been difficult for me to focus, as I'm sure for many of you, this past week, and I'm thankful we have been on a break. But even during this break, I have found that unless I do something to take care of myself, my own mental and emotional health, I will not be able to go back and do what I love most, and that is teaching. I recently came across the term radical self-care and it piqued my attention. Here's what a psychologist Suzanne Degas-White wrote in Psychology Today. Radical self-care is about making sure that you don't just mindlessly enjoy a bubble bath, quote unquote, without actually scrubbing yourself clean. We light candles to mask bad odors like pets, burnt food, musty things, but if we're not taking time to really address the cause of the unpleasantness, we're just going to be burning candles at both ends and never dealing with what is actually causing the stink. Radical self-care is about taking care of things at the source rather than just sugarcoating or managing the symptoms. Ironically, it seems that the world is engaged in this radical self-care in a way. We're faced with a stink and need to find a way to eliminate it. 
The psychologist further goes on to break radical self-care down into five categories. Self-care for coping self, for your social self, for your physical self, for your essential self, and for your creative self. I think the basic premise of radical self-care is to be completely honest with yourself no matter what you do. While I'm not going to assign the specific activities to specific categories, I'm going to share with you five ways that have helped me clear my mind and get centered, especially this past week. And it is my sincere hope that the tips I share here will help you if and whenever you are in the same spot of confusion and inability to focus due to circumstances outside of your control. Remember, you cannot help anyone effectively when you are in a fight or flight state. Even on the airplanes, they tell you to put the oxygen mask first on yourself and only then help those around you. So here goes. Tip number one, acknowledge and honor how you feel. Whenever we find ourselves in stressful situations, be they sudden or ongoing, it is important to identify our own feelings, which is what I did at the very start of this episode. I feel sad. I feel angry. I feel powerless. These are important phrases for two reasons. First, because when you say, I feel, you put some distance between yourself and the feeling. For example, saying I am sad might imply that you're a sad person. And second, once you name the emotion, your mind immediately relaxes and begins to look for ways to help you out. Once you acknowledge to yourself how you feel, do what actually calms you down. What do you typically do that helps you cope? If you need to talk to people, call them. If you need to buy food for the next two weeks, do it. If you feel good when you make a list or have a plan of what's next, create one. If you are a writer, pour it all out in a journal. I highly recommend this one. And if you're a talker, go at it with your voice memos on the phone. Being honest with yourself will bring you more peace and peace is a powerful tool in most stressful situations. Tip number two, give yourself space by saying no. We seek information to educate ourselves and to share with others, but we forget one vital point. To give ourselves space and time to actually sit and understand our own feelings and to come to our own conclusions as to how we can be of service or how we can deal with it. The amount of information that is reaching us every minute of every day is impossible to quantify. I heard some somewhere that today we get as much information in one day as the people in Shakespearean times got in their entire lifetime. And I don't have an actual source for this, but a part of me believes that it might be true. TV news channels, social media, emails, news online, friends, colleagues, family members, everyone has their own spin of what you should do and how you should or shouldn't feel in any given situation, whether it's a global issue like a war or personal or family tragedy. Saying no to the noise means creating your own boundaries. Saying no allows you to find space and listen to what your reaction and emotion is in the situation. So making a decision to only respond to text messages or emails between certain hours or not to respond after certain hours, deliberately not turning the TV on or seeking news articles on your phones first thing when you wake up will provide you with the space that you need. 
It is only in silence we can hear the most important things that we need to know, and I am a firm believer of that. Tip number three. Become present in your body. Um, Physical activity, if it is available to you, is a fantastic way to get grounded. Human body was designed to move, and so it is natural that sitting or laying down for extended periods of time will make you begin stewing in your own juices. Physical activity literally means anything that will get you moving. My go-to activities are walking, hiking, and dancing, sometimes running. Truth be told, I walk to solve problems, find answers to nagging questions, or to come up with creative ideas for my blog, podcast, and teaching resources. If I am particularly in my head, then I run. That brings me back to the center, and by the time I get back, whatever it was that was bothering me had gone down to manageable size, if not disappeared at all. We often tend to create stories about physical activity in our heads. For example, I'm not good at dancing, or I don't have time to walk, or I hate running. And I can understand that. But in this situation, it's not about how good you are at something. We are not competing against others or trying to prove something. It is about us taking care of ourselves in a way that works for us. Even if it means awkwardly shaking and calling it dance, or turning the phone off and walking up and down the driveway for 10 minutes, If anything, you'll also get a laugh, and laughter is a great, great medicine. Here are some other ideas of physical activity, in case the ones that I mentioned earlier do not jive with you. Gardening. For us in the Northeast, this is restricted to certain seasons, but still it's a great way to get disconnected. Cleaning your house. This is one of my go-to activities when I need to recenter. Reorganizing a room, closet, or shelf, taking a bath. While not as active, it is still taking care of your body. So tip number four, take a mental health day. So this piece of advice is nothing new and we have learned how truly important it is to give yourself space and take a day when you need it during the pandemic. But I have included it here simply because I personally struggle with it a lot. And because even though we know we should take a day to ourselves, we tend to talk ourselves out of it. I don't know about you, but that's certainly me. There could be a multitude of reasons, from creating subplans to feeling the need to keep going because the students have a quiz coming up, to a meeting that had been scheduled months ago and you don't want to change it. But I think... One of the main reasons, at least for me, is feeling guilty and not enough and partly a desire to control the situation, that I am an important part of my job, an important part of my students' lives, and sometimes the ego doesn't want to give up. So if you have sick time or personal time built in, use it. If you don't take a day when your body and soul are crying for it, you will get sick, and then you will really need to take uh, at least one day off. But what kind of recharging is it when you're physically unwell? Tip number five, take action. So the first instinct in a moment of any adversity, be it a global issue like war or personal tragedy, is to help others. How can we help, we ask? What can I do, we wonder. I'm including this because this is a natural way for me to react when something happens, And I have also learned that if I get outside of myself, I am able to see the situation more clearly. 
Now that we have acknowledged to ourselves how we feel, have given ourselves some space and become present by coming back to our body, we are likely in the space to help others. So it's natural to want to help others in need, but let's think about this too. Sometimes we do it because we're afraid, for example, of being a bad daughter or son, neighbor, or citizen. And sometimes we do it because others are doing the same thing. But what if we asked ourselves, what are my gifts and how can those gifts be used to help others? If donating money is not natural to you, then don't do it. Giving your time to visit a loved one, reaching out to a friend in need, or expressing your strong opinion about the events in the world in a public rally might do more good. My family and I took the time to go to a peaceful protest in support of Ukraine in Boston last weekend. There were thousands of people and we felt like we were making a difference, even though the result may not be tangible right away. If food is your love language, then that is how you help. If volunteering at a hospital or with refugees is something you're drawn to, then that is what you do. I read about teachers volunteering to help Ukrainian children continue their education, even in the adversity of war. This speaks to me personally because I feel this would be a meaningful way that would help me get out of my head and provide tangible aid to those in need. I hope you have found these tips helpful. There are many other ways that I have not mentioned here. For example, if you are into arts and music, taking the time to create something will bring you back to center, be it a poem, practicing on your instrument or painting. I will link the article about radical self-care in the show notes, along with some reliable organizations you can donate to to help the people of Ukraine. And as mentioned at the beginning, on behalf of Simply Yeva, I'm donating 10% of all the proceeds from sales this month to UNICEF, an organization that helps children in crisis situations. So if you have been looking for ways to support both your students and people of Ukraine, this would be a great opportunity to do both. Thank you for listening and until next time. Make sure you subscribe to the ESL Teaching Podcast so you don't miss an episode. Share it with your colleagues, and if you feel inspired, I'd love a positive review. Reviews improve the chances of this podcast to be discovered in the feed and help our fellow ESL ELL teachers.